welcome to episode 411 of Troubadours and Rockon Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with educator, fiddler, and our resident historian, Surf William. We talk with the Surf about living a life of confusion and manipulation or not, bushcraft, Camus, Yoko Ono, Zen and the art of cross-country ski maintenance, and how COVID is real, among other things. A wonderful conversation with Surf William this week. We have an EWSA titled Brown and Pink, and our associate producer, the illustrious Dr. Michael Pavis, reads an excerpt from Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus. And we also have a poem titled Nucleus. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 411 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
brown and pink. Adam and Eve and Steve and Albert Camus and me and you too with Lady Gaga, Erica Badu, cause and effect into taboos, miscues, notions of heaven and earth as the sun rises with novel semblances of what right now one can do toward rebirth and we reflect on the wanton neglect the wasted and misguided intellect of so many billions. Your happiness hinges on whether this or that opinion goes your way. And as this is embraced and digested, further the ark strays from the oft-sighted promised land. As here we stand at this very moment, right on top of it, rooted in us as we are rooted into it. Heroes, ne'er-do-wells, champions, nothing and everything, saviors and complicit. All of the joys, vagaries, and illicit movements, motions, elixirs, and potions. I just watched a man snow-ski to the mountaintop wearing nothing but sandals and a scarf. He claims the cold gives him strength, clarity, and cures him of disease. Shortly thereafter, I dry cough and sneeze into the abyss. Looking out the back window at my neighbor's yard, as I wonder how I can do more than simply subsist, on the vast portions of existence I am afforded, given my access and position. Just another rendition of one human's daily swan song. And now I can taste the coffee on my tongue, bittersweet through the throngs, the incessant gongs that humanity sounds as marks of cause and effect. I think I will have some more. It keeps me erect, trying not to worry about the score, what is to come, how to get more. What is this trek? What into this hole must I inject? Instead, perhaps, it could be left to the soul of pure amour, and the rest are just parts of the sum du jour. Tell me, is this the cure?
Surf William, is that you? It is. It is I, E.W. It's so nice to have you back on the program, our resident historian, educator, fiddler, Surf William. Also, a guy who likes to throw axes around. So maybe we should start there. Uh, you know, you're one one of the things we um, discussed offline was how you're coping with the pandemic and you mentioned axes and saunas well yeah right whatever you got to do to get through this thing that's my philosophy so you come home from work you sharpen some axes you flip them into a tree and then you strip down and take a sauna is that basically it yeah well it's well the the throwing part evolved out of just the axe part we um i'll make this really really quick we have a wood-burning stove in our house and the last couple of winters, we've ordered wood from a local guy who supplies firewood. And so, you know, we order the wood and he brings it and drops it in the driveway and we stack it. And a neighbor behind our house took down a bunch of ash trees. As you know, like it's there's a real there's a real like 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 um, destruction of ash trees going on right now, uh, at least in the eastern United States. There's a it's called the ash, the emerald ash borer it's a it's an insect that gets into the trees yeah and roots it digs into them and it, and it kills them over time yeah we've experienced it up in my neck of the woods too yeah. i know you have because i have friends up there who said it's been really devastating to a lot of their trees on their properties um anyway long story short this guy took down some trees ash and some other hardwoods on his property and he had the tree people come out and cut them up and they just left them there and so between Eight months ago and two or three years ago, this guy has had trees taken down and they've cut them into rounds, what are called rounds, and they just leave them there. So I saw him on the road one day and I said, uh, listen, you, I'd love to take that wood from your property. And he said, oh, my God, I would I would love you. I would love it if you did that. So I thought, OK, there's a good project for me. I can split my own firewood. So I started going up. He lives up the hill from us. I went up the hill and I was having a lot of fun. Actually, I rolled the rounds all the way down the hill onto our property. And then I I bought a I bought a wood mall, you know, that's specifically designed for splitting rounds of wood into firewood. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I bought this. I bought a couple different splitting devices. I bought a wedge and a sledgehammer and a splitting wall. And now when I was a kid, my dad had a wood burning stove. And so I remember as a kid, 
you know, splitting and stacking firewood. And it really was kind of nostalgic for me to start doing this again. It was really kind of fun. And uh, I started splitting and and that just kind of led me naturally into axes because, you know, the splitting wall is just a, a version of an axe. It's just a broader, wider axe head that splits wood. And I just realized I, I, I it was a lot of fun to, you know, sharpen an axe, to, to cut things up with an axe, cut up scrap wood with an axe, cut up my own, split my own kindling. And one thing led to another, and I, I kind of, it's a little bit of a fetish now, I think. I'm, I'm really into axes. Of course, I go on YouTube, and I, start, and I start searching up, you know, axes and bushcraft, and that leads me into, like, outdoor survival, where these bushcraft people go into the woods and build their own shelters and, you know, spend two or three days out in the woods um, basically just camping out. And they rarely ever do it with a tent. They go out there with an axe and with a, uh, a knife and they build their own shelters from like the scrap timber that's lying around them. And, you know, I really I, I, I did step back and I analyzed it a little bit. I psychoanalyzed myself a little bit. And I thought, you know, there was something inside of me, a desire to get back to more basic stuff. And for me, it was, you know, getting in touch with my heat source. So like. I go and get the wood and I move the wood to a certain location and then I split the wood and then I stack the wood. And then by extension, you have a lot of scrap laying around. You know, you get a hatchet and you start cutting up this scrap with the hatchet. And I'm going to tell you the throwing part of it. That's almost like it almost happens naturally. You're walking around with a little hatchet in your hand and you see a dead standing tree and there's something there's something innate and 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 sort of primitive and natural about then just throwing this axe so i started just throwing the axes at this dead tree and i'm like oh this is really cool you know throwing axes and it really works like you can throw them and stick them in the tree and so as a result now i have about now this has been about uh seven or eight months i have like 15 axes hatchets and axes and uh, Ali bought me a sharpening system for our bench grinder. So I, your wife, I, yeah, my wife and I, I, I do my own sharpening. And then we also got into, I can pick up these really inexpensive axes at some places like Harbor Freight or, um, tractor supply. We started wood burning and we're customizing the handles and we're going to give them away as gifts. You might have an ax in your future. EW. <laughs> if you play your cards right, there might be a nice sharp little hatchet in your future. That's um, great. So, you know, it really is. I really feel like it was a well, it's a response to where I live because we kind of we live in suburbia, but it's suburbia with a twist. We live back in the woods. So it's not like suburban lawns. All the homes here in our area, in our neighborhood are actually back in the in the woods. People live like in the trees, you know, so. There's a lot of trees around us and some of them have come down. And so as a, and we have a wood burning stove and it's kind of those like an outgrowth or an extension of where we live. You know, why not play with wood? It's all around you. It's fun. Um, it's practical. See, I really like I really like stuff that's practical. Like when I go out and split wood and play with wood and cut it up, I know ultimately most of that wood is actually going to end up in my wood stove. And that makes me feel really good because it's it's a healthy activity. I'm getting outside. I'm getting exercise. I'm I'm increasing my fuel supply for the winter, and um, I like things like that. Things that can be applied. Things that have a practical application. And this does. And I still feel it's like 
there's something else going on here. Like I needed to get back to nature or something with the pandemic and everything else going on in the world in four years of that previous president. I think I needed to escape. I think I needed some escapism and this provided that for me. And I think it provided it like in a healthy way. You know, I could have done heroin, but I chose I chose what I feel is a healthier avenue. And the sauna, you know, the sauna was just an outgrowth of again this summer. All of our plans got canceled. You know, I'm a performer. Most of my performances were canceled. Um, you know that I travel a lot and, and my wife and I were going to travel a lot. All of our travel plans got canceled. So we found ourselves grounded here at home. And I thought, I'm not going to wallow in the things that I lost. I'm going to try and discover things that I can, things that I can experience even with a lockdown. And one of those things was we have a little piece of land here. Um, Ali always wanted a chicken coop. So I, I built a chicken coop. I just, we went online. We found some very simple plans. I'm not a great craftsman, but you know, it was simple stuff. And I built that. And then I built a shed because we needed that. We had a little piece of land where I could put a few little structures. And then I said to her, I've always wanted a sauna. I spent a summer in Finland and I'm fascinated with saunas and I've always wanted one. It's going back 26 years. I've wanted a sauna. And she said, well, now's your opportunity. Just build it. And so... I built a sauna and, you know, we, 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 we were lucky enough to uh, be able to repurpose some used cedar and some used tempered glass for windows. So it was really like a cool, it was a team project between us. And we went out and we found the materials, a lot of the materials, and we built a sauna. And, um, you know, it's really, it's a freestanding sauna. It sits out in the back of the, you know, in the backyard. And, and that's um, wood fired. I mean, wood uh, fueled, right? Well, okay, this is my shame. <laughs> I, w- I was going to do a wood fuel sauna, which, have, which would have been a really authentic, you know, it would have been a simulation of an authentic Finnish smokehouse. I took saunas in Finland that were way back in the woods by a pristine lake, and the people who own the sauna would fire it with wood, and it would, take, it would be an all-day process. I mean, it's an all-day process to prepare for a sauna. You've got to prepare the sauna. Some of them had hot tubs, wood-fired hot tubs. So they'd fire up the sauna. They'd fire up the hot tub. It was a process. It was an hours-long process. And Ali said to me, do you really want to do that every time you want to take a sauna? So we got an electric electric heater. It has the stones on top. It heats up the stones just like a wood-fired sauna. But it's electric, and you just flip a switch, and you wait one hour. American. American. No, that's not true. That's not true. In Finland... I think the majority of saunas in Finland are electric because it's just out of sheer practicality. It's just easier. Yeah, it's progress. Yeah, wood-fired saunas are awesome. Don't get me wrong. That's the ultimate experience. But we're kind of using it almost every night. So, you know, I don't want to have to build a fire from scratch every night. I flip a switch and, you know, we're ready to go. And I will tell you, when you're in there and it's 200 degrees, you don't care if it's if your heat source is fire or your heat source is electricity, because it's hot in there and it's, it's wonderful. It's very therapeutic. One, I'm, I'm happy for you, you know, despite, I, despite the fact that your, your ecological footprint is much larger than it needs to be with the, with the electric fueled sauna. Well, you know what? I was thinking about that too. There's a lot of, I think about that stuff all the time and we'll talk about, I'll talk about axes a little more and I'll talk about how, you know, the economic, the socioeconomic inequities of the world, um, sort of troubled me with my axe purchases, but we'll talk about that. But the sauna itself, we've been checking our electric bill. It's only gone up by a very little bit, by a fraction. So I 
think the energy that we're saving in heating costs in the house because we heat with wood in the house offsets it. Yeah, but you know, we're still creating smoke. I mean, let's face it, it's hard for a human to live in this world without causing a lot of damage, even if you're just leading a normal life. I remember one time when I was uh, at Vermont Law School all those years ago, I was in a, a first semester course and this professor just asked this general question. You know, it was one of the first few days of the course. What can humans do best to help um, stop the damage uh, that we we cause to the natural environment here on Earth? Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> this person raised her hand and uh, the professor said, Ms. Savage, that, that was her last name, never met her before. Uh, and she said, Die. <laughs> I was going to say go extinct. Yeah, right. And I, I turned around and looked at her, and I'm like, yeah, I got to meet this person. And, <laughs> and Eliza, she was, she's wonderful. Anyway, yeah, you, uh, I think you're right. It's hard for us to not have some sort of impact to the natural environment. We try, and, and, and uh, you know, what you're doing, though, I think overall is healthier. It's going to give you a better state of mind, and it – and and maybe then you'll make better decisions, generally speaking, as a as a human on this planet. And it, it leads me to ask you something else that you wanted to delve into, and I think you're getting there anyway. Uh, life as a philo- philosophical journey. You know, this so- sounds to me like a philosophical journey to a certain extent. The axes, the saunas, how you reflect uh, with regard to your place in, in all of this. Well, we we all you and I always come back to this notion of or at least I bring it up anyway. I I say, you know, you got to take care of yourself first. It starts with you. It starts with the individual and everything sort of emanates out from there. So, you know, be the change, right? Like if some of these um, some of these sayings, be the change that you want to see in the world. Mahatma Gandhi. Right. Be the change that you want to see in the world. Um, Love yourself. You know, love your you, you can't love others until you truly love yourself. So. You know, the messages that I've been getting over the years, the philosophical uh, messages that I and spiritual messages that I've been getting over the years keep coming back to that theme of, you know, take care of yourself first, get your house in order, and then you'll be in a much better position to go out and affect some kind of change in the world that you want to see. And, um, you know, my recent adventures in bushcrafting and and building and, and axes you know, that was my way of just sort of taking care, nurturing myself, doing things that I found interesting and thought were healthy and um, sort of tuning out. I admit it, tuning out a lot of the noise that we experience in our everyday lives. And we know from the previous president how absolutely um, um, uh, paralyzing that can be and how demoralizing it can be and how unhealthy it can be. So it's what, up to tu- us. Tuning out, you mean? No, tuning in, tuning in, you know, listening, listening to that noise all the time. We know that that's not a healthy endeavor. You know, we had a president who every day was bombarding us with insanity. And those of us who are really tuned into current events were finding it to be really a bit too much like we were feeling like we were just being beat down. So I think my retreating into the woods, <clears throat> I think it's pretty obvious was a reaction to and a response to the noise that was coming at me from from our from our society as it was over the last four years so i was does that does that lead though perhaps to uh 
um, not being involved in the in the community enough in the process enough, whereas then uh, scoundrels such as the previous president can could uh, control and gain more power over guess, over our over our country over our lives. I guess if your reaction to it is to simply drop out, I guess you are. Look, I think I'm a person who thinks everything's political. And we'll get to this idea of like a philosophical grounding in a moment. But I believe everything's political. And I believe if you abdicate your responsibilities as a political being, you are automatically handing them over to someone else. So even the choice to be apolitical is political, right? Because you you, you need to be politically engaged in order to exercise, in order to <clears throat> exercise your voice and to, and to, um, achieve the goals that you want to achieve in your society. And if you say, I'm not going to watch the news, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read about what's going on, I'm not going to take a stand, you're automatically ceding more power to somebody else who is going to get involved and take a stand. And there's a chance that that person doesn't think the way you do, is not is not politically oriented the way you are. And so what you're doing in effect is you're ceding more power to them, you know, even if only a little bit, but that's a political act in and of itself. So my attitude is better to stay engaged than to completely disconnect and give that other person the power, that other person who might not um, have the same vision of what our society should be, uh, the other person who thinks differently than you do politically. And so, um, you know, my running away was just my way of sort of staying sane and staying grounded. But I by no means dropped out of society. I'm still very much engaged in what's going on in our communities and our in our country, you know, our larger country. Right. It's it's basically about not getting lost in the noise. Uh, right. Yeah. I had to take care of myself. Yeah. I had to do things that were healthy for me. Otherwise, I was going to lose my mind. And if that meant listening to less uh, uh, news on the radio. Well, then so be it. I wasn't really missing a lot. I was still engaged. Um, I'm still active. I still contact my legislators. I still, uh, I still go to work every day as a public school teacher. So I am having an effect on our society, even if it's only with the students in my classroom, but I'm still engaged. I just know that at this age, I've got to take care of myself too. And the people around me and mid fifties, mid fifties, mid fifties. Yeah. I'm almost double nickels. Let me let me ask you about uh, how this leads into um, you know the choice of being confused in life, you know manipulation uh, being a big part of how uh, you're directed, you know or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How 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 does all this uh, throwing the axes, taking saunas, uh, you know building chicken coops? <laughs> how does this keep you from from living a life of confusion for from not uh, being so susceptible to manipulation and, and to increasing, you know, an understanding and developing, a, 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 I guess, a, a more dynamic belief system in, in the way that, you, you know, you go day to day. Well, there's, there's, so there's a couple different things there. One element here is get, you know, know yourself, like explore yourself, do that work, right? Who are you? What do you believe in? Why do you believe it? What are your core values? This is what I tell my students. I used to have students ask me things like, um, do you think Barack Obama is a good president? And I would say to them, well, before you can answer that question of which president you feel is good or which president you feel is bad, you have to know yourself. You have to know what your values are. 
because they're only going to be good or bad in a subjective way, right? Depending on what your belief system is and your values are. You know, some people thought Donald Trump was a great president, right? Well, they clearly have different values than I do because I thought he was a disaster. So step one is like, know yourself. What are your core beliefs and why do you believe them? And why do you think that they are good? Why do you think they are beneficial? I contend that in our society, we do not educate people philosophically, politically. There's no um, class consciousness. So people don't, people are not grounded in a sound belief system. So through that system, and you and I have talked about this before, but through that confusion, you can have people who believe that Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell you know, average working people taking home an hourly wage paycheck every couple of weeks can actually believe that Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell and Marco Rubio and Donald Trump are looking out for them, are on their side, are their advocates. Why? Because they're confused and they don't know where they stand philosophically or politically. And therefore, they can do mutually contradictory things like they can put the yard sign in their yard that says we support our police, which we all know what that's code for. But they can simultaneously cheer for and vote for Donald Trump, who promoted a riot, uh, an insurrection that uh, whereby people stormed the Capitol and murdered law enforcement officers. And they can think that's great. So how do you hold those two mutually contradictory ideas in your head? Well, you're confused. You haven't really thought it through. And when you say we support our police, that's not really what you mean. You support our police when they're arresting and murdering people of color. But if they're standing in the way of Christian fundamentalists storming the Capitol, I don't support them anymore. Now it's okay to kill them. So when you're dealing with such confused thinking, it's very easy to manipulate. And that's what the Republicans have become really, really good at. They don't stand for anything. We couldn't sit here and have a half an hour show about the policies that the Republicans are promoting to help average Americans because there are none. But we can talk about abortion and guns and the flag. And you can see that these people are ready to vote against their own economic and social self-interests because they have really confused thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, to be able to transcend that is understanding how how to think and understanding history. And as you said, being a little deeper in your sense of um, who you are and, and, and where you are. Uh, I, I, I totally agree with you, as you know. Uh, now, when when I... When I think about um, how better to get to a, a place of, I guess, greater understanding, a little bit more uh, enlightenment inside, I think about some of the great uh, writers and philosophers that you could sit down with and spend time with. Uh, that, that they they help greatly. Uh, we we don't read them enough, I'm sure. We don't read history enough, I'm sure you'd agree. I I know there's a there's one one uh, in particular um, a writer philosopher that you you like Camus right Albert mm -hmm. Camus uh, mm -hmm. and you there's a particular piece that you wanted to talk about a little bit today that he he uh, scribbled <clears throat> yeah you and I have talked about um and again I'm no expert like you have other guests on your show because I listen to your show you know I'm an avid listener I'm a oh, big fan you're a big fan and I love I'm a big fan and and you have guests who are 
incredibly articulate and well-read. And um, I know you have guests on this show that know a lot more about various topics than, than I do, including Camus, who I've read, but I don't claim to be an expert on. But one thing really jumped out at me, and that was um, um, Resistance, Rebellion, and Death, I want to say, is the, is the collection of letters and um, short articles that Camus wrote. Uh, Resistance, Rebellion, and Death. I'm almost certain that that's the name of the book. Um, and it's a collection of it's a collection of Camus' writings. Some of them are transcriptions of speeches he gave. Some of them are uh, articles that he wrote for resistance newspapers in World War II. And one of the articles that he wrote was a series of, I think they were fictitious letters. I don't think they were really to a person. But they were called Letters to a German Friend. And I'm going to try, I'm sure I'm not going to do this thing justice, but I'm going to try and give you a quick, quick synopsis of what they were. This is in the heart of World War II. So there are a series of letters to a German friend. The first letter comes earlier on in the war, let's say 42 or 43, where Camus acknowledges to his German friend, and that, by the way, German friend is, is shorthand for, you know, Nazis living in Germany. Um, Camus says... You know, you're winning right now. Clearly you're winning. You know, you've invaded all your neighboring countries. You've imposed your you've imposed your fascist dictatorship upon formerly free people. You are you are spewing a gospel of hate. You are murdering. You're winning right now, but you won't win. And the reason you won't win is because in achieving your victories, you have sacrificed your humanity. Now, anybody who's willing to sacrifice their humanity and do anything to get what they want, they can appear really powerful and they can appear as if they're winning. But in fact, since they've sold their humanity, basically sold their soul, they're really empty. And you're going to see over time, those of us who have maintained our humanity, those of us who still believe in basic human decency, we will win. We're going to we're going to win. And it might be it might take us a while, but we'll win simply because you have sacrificed all of those core values that make a human being a human being. He then goes on to write letters later on. And sure enough, I think the last ones he wrote were in 1944 after the after the uh, D-Day invasions. And he says to his German friend, now I want to show you what's going to happen next. You know, now you're losing. I told you you would lose. You sacrificed all your human decency for your country, for your state, for your Fuhrer, for your leader. And because you sacrificed everything that makes a human a human, now you're losing. And guess what? You're going to lose and we're going to win. But here's the thing. When we win, and we will, we are not going to subjugate you. We are not going to torture you. We're not going to murder you. We're going to bring you back into the fold and we're going to make you acknowledge that what you thought and what you did was absolutely wrong and contrary to human spirit and that there is a price to be paid for that and you will pay that price. But please know that because we did not sacrifice our humanity and our human decency, you're still going to win. Like even in losing, you'll win because we're going to impose on you standards that are decent and moral that you can live with, um, unlike what you were going to do to us if you won which was subjugate us and enslave us and murder us and kill us and rape us. We're not going to do that. Um, and I, I take that as, you know, the parallel today is Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz, people with no shame and no dignity. 
people people who are willing to do anything to hold on to and further their political power and wealth they've sacrificed all of those basic human values so those of us who still kind of hold on to those beliefs and values we sit here in bewilderment wondering how someone can behave that way but i contend that you know they are the german friend they are the ones who sacrificed everything right and good and decent just to get their win just to just to get what they want and our job is going to be to beat them and then after we beat them to show them that that's not the way the way is you know maintaining our basic human values and not turning into not turning into you know bloodthirsty murderers nicely put surf william giving us a little history a little philosophy uh, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. He is our resident historian. Almighty Todd, our, our resident philosopher, might be you know, listening and taking notes uh, to share about how, how you're, you're doing a great job interpreting Camus. Uh, I'll let you know. Um, yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, I love that I'm the resident historian. I think that's me, awesome. Me too, me too. But to me, history has very little value if you can't make real world connections right. with the historical lessons that you're learning. Philosophy is the same way. For me, I'm a very practically minded person. We talked about that earlier. I like things that have practical applications. And although I'm not a philosopher, although I'm not a, a, a hyper intellectual, I do like to read history and philosophy and and make those connections to the world that I, that we are living in right now and the problems that face us now. And um, that piece from Camus really jumped out at me because as I was reading it, I just kept seeing the faces of our political opponents and how absolutely base and crass and and uh, and horrible these people have become. And I thought to myself, they've sacrificed everything for their political wins. And that's exactly what Camus was talking about. Um, so, you know, when I read Camus, it's not some esoteric ivory tower philosophical debate. It's got real world applications. Camus was right. And we're experiencing that in our time, too. Now, you know, we're just about uh, out of time with this uh, this go round of, of uh, Sir William on the program. I know... In a minute or so, let's pull together and and give our listeners at the same time uh, a little something to to digest uh, for the week. What, with regard to, I know you wanted to talk a bit about Zen and the art of uh, uh, cross country <laughs> ski maintenance. How how can that help us bring it all home and give us some sustenance as we move forward? Um, yeah, you know, that was like a little riff on Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And, great, um, great book. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, you're getting me down, you're making me go down these philosophical roads that I don't know that I'm qualified to really well, talk no, about. Well, no, just you, you know, you're doing this. I know you're doing some cross country skiing. Uh, yeah, and- we got, we had a really snowy February, as you know, we had a lot of snow down here in Southeastern Pennsylvania too, in Bucks County. And a lot of people gripe and bitch and moan about, you know, the weather and the ice and the snow and the hassle and the cold, but I love it. Like I absolutely love it. And it was an opportunity for me to get back out on my cross-country skis. I, I had a solid month, more than a month actually, of really, really like Vermont-like cross-country ski conditions, you know, in my neighborhood. So I was able to get out of my cross-country skis a lot. So all I meant by that was this. I took my skis out early on. Before Christmas, we had a little snowstorm and I was able to ski. And one of my skis broke. So my choices were throw them in the trash and buy new skis or try to fix them. 
So what did I do? I went on YouTube. By the way, I can't say enough about YouTube. And I know Almighty Todd has 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 sung the praises of YouTube also. So I think I'm in good company. But I went on YouTube, how to fix your skis. And I found a video and I did it. Long story short, I fixed my skis and they worked great. And I got them back on again and I got back out into the snow. So like not only was I able to enjoy the weather as I found it, because there's nothing more pointless than bitching about the weather, because come on, I mean, seriously, like, you know, it's the weather, right? Uh, I got I got back on my skis and I was enjoying the the really cold, really snowy weather. And I just felt really good because, you know, I did it myself. I had something that was broken and I and I had no idea how to fix it, but I, I learned and I did it. And there was a real feeling of satisfaction and, and a certain element of joy that I got from being out in the elements, you know, utilizing something that I actually put together. And there's a real joy from that. And, um, you know, for me during this pandemic, I've sort of forced myself to do those things that I wouldn't normally do. And I have to say that in the, in the midst of all the pain and suffering that we're experiencing now, I've been able to find a little bit of peace and satisfaction because I've been able to teach myself new things and experience new things and maybe grow a little bit as a human being as a result of, of the adversity. Um, maybe that's where I was going. I'm not really sure. I love it. Surf William, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for bringing your energy, your insight, uh, to the program. I, I really appreciate it. I just want you to tell your listeners, I came off the bench today. I want to get the, mo- the, the, the most valuable player award at the end of the year for coming off the bench. You got it. You, you, <laughs> you're always there for us. I appreciate it. <laughs> always. I love your show. I love it. I love it. I listen to it all the time. I, all the time. Seriously. I love I, it. I know. I'm honored. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Enjoy, enjoy your axes and your saunas and such. Okay, I'm waiting for you to visit. We're going to throw some axes. We're going to take a sauna. It's going to be great. <laughs> Very soon, I'll be, there. I'll be there. Ciao. All right, peace, Faltello. Peace. Ciao. Ciao. And I damn near didn't come back again I didn't go very fast on a steam-powered airplane Oh, the wheel went around and up and down and inside and then back again Sitting in a 747 just watching them clouds roll by Can't tell if it's sunshine or if it's rain, hey, hey Rather be sitting in a deck chair high up over Kansas City On a genuine, old-fashioned, authentic steam-powered
said, wheel around and then back again. And wear a blue hat, yeah, that says steam-powered aeroplane. Letters go around the rim and then back again. Sitting in a 747 just watching them clouds roll by. Can't tell if the sunshine repeats rain, hey, hey. Rather be sitting in an empty chair high up over Kansas City on a genuine old-fashioned authentic steam-powered Albert Camus, from the myth of Sisyphus. One does not discover the absurd without being tempted to write a manual of happiness. What? By such narrow ways. There is but one world, however. Happiness and the absurd are two sons of the same earth. They are inseparable. It would be a mistake to say that happiness necessarily springs from the absurd discovery. It happens as well that the feeling of the absurd springs from happiness. I conclude that all is well, says Oedipus, and that remark is sacred. It echoes in the wild and limited universe of man. It teaches that all is not, has not been, exhausted. It drives out of this world a god who had come into it with a dissatisfaction and a preference for futile sufferings. It makes a fate a human matter, which must be settled among men. All Sisyphus's silent joy is contained therein. His fate belongs to him. His rock is his thing. Likewise, the absurd man, when he contemplates his torment, silences all the idols. In the universe suddenly restored to its silence, the myriad wondering little voices of the earth rise up unconscious, secret calls, invitations from all the faces, they are the necessary reverse and price of victory. There is no sun without shadow, and it is essential to know the night. The absurd man says yes, and his effort will henceforth be unceasing. If there is a personal fate, there is no higher destiny, or at least there is but one which he concludes is inevitable, and despicable. For the rest, he knows himself to be the master of his days. At that subtle moment, when man glances backwards over his life, Sisyphus returning toward the rock, in that slight pivoting he contemplates that series of unrelated actions which become his fate, created by him, combined under his memory's eye, 
and soon sealed by his death. Thus convinced of the holy human origin of all that is human, a blind man eager to see who knows that the night has no end, he is still on the go, the rock is still rolling. I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one's burden again. But Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe, henceforth without a master, seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain, in itself forms a world. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to, man, to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy.
nucleus. The old jerseys in the dresser in the attic room, I used to wear them a lot of hair on my head ago. The smell of dry incense in a slim box, a naturally occurring perfume, and the cobwebs rattle as a squirrel scratches in through a hole in the front eave. This life is so vast as things subtly spin into existence. It is a matter of what one can perceive. One, two, three. If you close the door, the night could last forever. Leave the sun shine out and say hello to never. All the people are dancing and they're having such fun. I wish it could happen to me. But if you close the door, I'd never have to see the day again If you close the door The night could last forever Leave the wine glass out And drink a toast to never Oh, someday I know someone will look into my eyes And say, hello, you're my very special one but if you close the door, I'd never have to see the day again. Dog party bars, shiny Cadillac cars, and the people on subways and trains. Looking gray in the rain as they stand us array. All but people look well in the dark. And if you close the door, the night could last forever Leave the sun shine out And say hello to never All the people are dancing and they're having such fun I wish it could happen to me Cause if you close the door I'd never have to see the day again I'd never have to see the day again Once more I'd never have to see the day again And there you have it Episode 411 of Troubadours and Tours With yours truly E.W. Conundrum Demure I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible First and foremost, our good friend, Surf William, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, writer Albert Camus, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Jesus and the Mary Chain, Bob Marley and the Whalers, Bunny Whaler, rest your soul, John Hartford, the Allman Brothers, Mr. Moran, rest your soul, the Velvet Underground, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And of course, I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.